You may have heard me say this on other podcasts, but this is something on which my opinion has changed. You asked me 25 years ago when I first started, exactly like Chris, I'm like, no, animal proteins are higher quality. They've got more essential amino acids. They're more digestible. And I'm beginning to think that that's less and less. In fact, for the most part, it's a non-issue. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones. And I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link, which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm glad that we uh, finally have this opportunity to talk all things protein. All things protein. Great. Great to be here. Thanks, Simon. So we've been going back and forth on on emails for a couple of months now, sort of uh, trading thoughts and ideas of about all things protein and, and what's the adequate amount and what's the optimal amount and there are lots of different opinions about this uh, 
in the literature and, and, and online. So um, looking forward to, to trying to walk through some of this and, and clear some confusion, find out where you guys agree and where maybe you, you disagree and, and, and why. Um, and for, for background, uh, the kind of inspiration for this episode actually started from a, a sort of Twitter thread between the two of you, a bit of a, a back and forth um, scientific discussion that I really enjoyed and, and, and thought, well, wouldn't it be great to have an actual conversation together? Um, you know, something that Twitter doesn't, doesn't always allow for is expanding and getting into to a little bit more of the nuance. So I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of digging into that with both of you today. And just to preface this, because when protein comes up, I guess there's people sort of coming into this from different angles. I wanted to really focus on the average adult today in Western populations. So not so much the, the athletes, but whether the, the sort of current recommended dietary allowance is the, the optimal amount to support an adult as they're, as they're aging. And we can, I guess, define what optimal is. When, when I think about that and um, supporting healthy aging, I think about, well, firstly, musculoskeletal health. So things like bone mineral density, um, skeletal muscle preservation, strength, et cetera, which I guess tie into that idea of frailty. And then at some point, perhaps we can widen the lens and, and look at protein and, and perhaps how that may influence our risk of developing cardiovascular disease or cancer, the, the top two causes of, of death. Um, so I want this to be really free flowing. So I'll throw some questions out, but I'd like the, the two of you to kind of jump in when there's gaps and, and ask each other, um, questions. Stu, perhaps I can throw the first question at you here. Uh, I know that you're of the view that the RDA, or at least I, I believe this is your view that the RDA for protein is actually not what would be described as optimal for the average adult. Can you kind of kick things off by sort of telling us about your thinking process here and, and why you've landed in this position? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's several things. First, uh, you know, the, the methodology that establishes the recommended dietary allowance, right? And I, I've said in the past, and some people get a little bit twisted about this, is that if we called it the minimum dietary intake, I could actually sort of walk away from this and not really talk about it anymore. But I don't think it should be recommended. And I think you should be allowed to eat more. But let me just say that, you know, nitrogen balance, like a lot of balanced studies, uh, is a flawed methodology. The flaws are well known. Uh, and yet it's still the methodology that people sort of say, well, we have the most data on this. And it's unlikely that it's going to change at this point. You know, um, I, I don't think anybody's in a real hurry to uh, conduct a series of nitrogen balance studies. I've done a few myself. They're not a lot of fun. Um, but there's an increasingly positive nitrogen balance with increasing intakes like ad infinitum, which would suggest that people are accruing protein. We know that that's not the case. Uh, and the linear model, which is the current model that, you know, the Rand and Pellet paper, uh, which is the citation classic on which requirements are based, uh, actually takes out some data points, which change the answer to the question. I don't know if a linear model is the right way to look at it anyway. And when you add on top of that other approaches, and particularly the indicator amino acid oxidation method, um, and several other findings from our lab and others, uh, show that you know synthetic rates of proteins, bloodborne and muscleborne, 
uh, continue to increase even when you're taking intakes above the RDA, which implies right away that the RDA is insufficient for optimizing anabolism. So, you know, by definition, that means that the RDA is uh, insufficient. Christopher, is there anything that you'd, you'd want to, to kind of ask there or, or comment on with regards to, to the RDA and, and I guess the, the studies that are being used to inform it uh, having, having flaws? Yeah, so the whole question is insanely challenging because what is optimal? Is it all optimal for building muscle? Is it optimal for maintaining muscle? Is it optimal for preventing heart disease and cancer? And if you go back to when this was done, these nitrogen balance studies, I don't want to make this too personal, but I got my PhD at Berkeley, Stu, where uh, Doris Calloway and Shelley Morgan in the 70s mm-hmm. had conscientious war objectors from Vietnam. They stuck them in the fifth floor, the penthouse of Morgan Hall. They locked them up in zoot suits. They collected all their shit and all their pee and all their nail uh, nasal blowings, right? And anything that sloughed off their body. And they did these insanely elaborate studies of nitrogen in and nitrogen out, which I, I wonder if was cutting edge at the time. They really are disgusting sounding studies, right? As you alluded to, nobody mm-hmm. wants to do these again. Yeah. Uh, they lowered nitrogen intake to zero. And then they saw how much nitrogen was coming out. And then they said, is that how much you have to replace? And sort of a a really pivotal finding back then was that as they started refeeding them nitrogen, uh, they found out the body was being really efficient when they were getting zero nitrogen. So the amount they were losing, the amount of protein they were losing wasn't the amount that you needed to replace. As you started feeding them more protein, they weren't as efficient. As efficient, And so they got up to this point where they said, ah, now we're in nitrogen balance. Now the amount of protein or nitrogen going in is the same as going out. And Simon, for listeners, I mean, it would be, maybe it would be important to clarify the whole reason they did that is because protein itself is challenging to monitor. But an interesting aspect is almost all the nitrogen that comes into your body and leaves is protein related. Nitrogen is in all kinds of other things in your body, but quantitatively, protein is the major source of where the nitrogen is. So it was actually kind of clever that they had this proxy and they they pulled a bunch of studies like this. And Stu, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure if I know all the details, but the time they pulled the data across different groups and put them in the uh, IOM's report, the DRIs, I think they're in the 2005 tome of protein and carbs and fats and things like that. They said, okay, here's the estimated average requirement. That was really fascinating, Simon. I, I actually get a bunch of aha moments when, when I'm trying to explain how those RDAs came about. They had a normal distribution of individual requirement that they figured out whether the systems are flawed or not, the nitrogen balance method. They had a normal distribution. Most people needed average. There were people at both ends. Then when they make the recommended daily allowance, they don't promote the estimated average requirement. That would be a loser from the beginning. So if everybody got that estimated average requirement, by definition, half the people would be deficient Mm -hmm. because they're on the top of the normal distribution curve. And so they take two standard deviations above that, which technically exceeds the requirement, okay, flawed or not, Stu, exceeds the requirement of (laughs) 97.5% of the population. And as soon as I say that, people say, oh my God, I 
that's how they calculated it? I, I didn't realize mm. that was the approach, huh? That's really different than what I thought. I assumed they were calculating the mm. average. So as I teach this concept about nitrogen balance, normal distribution, estimated average requirement, recommended daily allowance, I know these might be too geeky for some of you, but I'm, I'm sure some people are going to like that aspect. So let's think you know, that's the method they used. It's back in the 1970s, as far as I can recall. Uh, it's really icky. Nobody's ever going to do it again. Stu, I don't know if you get this, but when I, you know, when I'm talking about this in the class, a couple of students say, well, I'm in, I'm up for estimating my individual protein requirement. And then I describe the method that they went through and they, I'm out. Nope, not me. I'm not doing that. And so what we have to have is proxy measures and that gets back to how I started this whole conversation. Is it lean muscle maintenance? Is it gain? Is it sarcopenia? Is it prevention of chronic disease? So it's really a challenging question to frame how you're going to say what the requirement for protein is. Stuart, I've got a, a question for you that kind of, I guess, follows on from that. When you're thinking about yeah. the, the RDA and your your position is that you don't think it's it's optimal what what's your definition of optimal so what are you are you thinking about sarcopenia or is it bone mineral density or is it function what's the the sort of meaningful i guess outcome of interest for you and then in addition to that with everything that that christopher just went through is is the the buffer that's been added to the estimated average requirement through this stu two standard deviation increase to get to the RDA is that sufficient to overcome the potential flaws in the nitrogen balance studies? Well, I, I think what you have to ask yourself: if somebody's in nitrogen balance, what's the associated physiology or relevant marker that would speak to the optimization that you care about? Because the answer is there is none. Like there is no physiological correlate that's associated with being in nitrogen balance. So not even nitrogen balance can give you an answer as to whether it's supportive of optimal rates of protein synthesis. We know for a fact that when you near requirements, you get much more efficient. And it makes sense. I mean, that's how humans have survived as long as we have. So the, the premise of the method and the method itself can't give you an answer to the question. So th there's, there's two questions being asked here. The first is, what's the minimum amount of dietary protein that I need and I can survive on? And, and chances are uh, that the RDA maybe is close, but we don't know. We don't have a good method to estimate it. So, uh, you know, like I agree with Chris, the, the, the description is spot on, uh, tons of detail in those studies, tons of you know, all kinds of data. Um, they're estimated on a group of individuals. We make the assumption that they're representative of everybody. I don't know whether everybody believes that there are 280 some odd people, which are the number of nitrogen balance points that went into the IOM report represents everybody in North American or Australian society. Uh, but it, it's, it's simply, you know, the, the method doesn't answer the question. So it's sort of a, a moot point to say, do you believe that adding to just something that we don't know is is makes it a good requirement? My my answer is you have no idea. I will say this is that estimating an optimal uh, requirement 
is exceptionally difficult. Uh, it could be body composition related, and that speaks to a lot of the work that we've done. It could be related to other health outcomes. And I think one of the things that you have to remember, like in North America anyway, is that the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges, which the uh, Dietary Guidelines Committee have agreed or associated with their words, good health, uh, put protein at anywhere from 10 to 35% of total energy intake. I want to so take issue with that. Keep going, but I want to come back but, to that. Well, well, hold on. So, so, so that concept is inconsistent with saying the RDA because it, it really does flatten out the, the, you know, the whole argument. So uh, small point, uh, the distribution wasn't normal. It tails off to the right, but when log corrected, it becomes normal. But so... Yeah, sorry, Chris, you had a, you had a, a rejoinder you wanted to yeah, make. Yeah, I, I find the AMDR, the acceptable macronutrient distribution rate, a little frustrating because as I understand it, and could be wrong, so I'm happy to hear back from you, Stu, they're kind of realistically trying to think about carbs and fat. And they said, okay, so carb, oh, yeah. carbs, can be, Absolutely. carbs can be this and fat can be this. And if you're at the lower end of carb and if you're at the lower end of fat, it has to add up to 100%. What's left? And it's 35%. And I, I don't think that 35% was anywhere near intentional other than math. And, uh, and I'd be, it'd be fun to get back to you on this. Oh, 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 uh, I, don't, I don't disagree, okay. but, but, but let's be clear. One of the things that the AMDR assumes is that there's a requirement for carbohydrate. And we know that that's not true. Carbohydrate is fuel. So is fat. And I mean, there's a tiny requirement for essential fatty acids. So the only functional macronutrient is protein. So I don't disagree that 35 is, yeah, it's a ridiculously high amount. And, but it, it, it's still in there as the number and it may be just math that it's left over, but it does suggest at least that, you know, if you're going to say it's associated with good health and is it, or is it not? And, and, you know, I don't I don't disagree that it's the math that's left over, but it really does hammer home the point that carbohydrate needs, quote unquote, are, are effectively zero. I mean, ketogenic dieters everywhere have shown us that's the case. So so there's a flaw in the estimation of the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges, maybe. There is. And so a funny point that I bring up for my class all the time is I I show a bunch of distributions in class and I say, okay, here's all the ones that, that would fit that AMDR and you probably never heard of these. Okay, now here are all the ones you've heard of. Mediterranean, that's outside, higher in fat. Here's keto, that's outside, lower in carb. Here's Ornish, that's outside, higher in carb. So all the ones that are popular that have been heard of are outside of the AMDR. So I'm, I'm really not sure what purpose the AMDR serves. <laughs> I, well, it's it's like the argument about the RDA. Either either we have a target, or, or we don't. Yeah. And so my position is, we have no idea how much protein people require. So because the method that we're using currently is flawed, but several other methods estimate that the the need, if that's the right way to say it, or the intake at which protein synthesis of any kind of protein is maximized. It is higher than the RDA. Like, but definition, you can't have that and say that the the requirement is 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 correct. But again, it's it's sort of like uh, as if 
you know, somebody came down from the mount and chiseled in the RDA as the requirement and thou shalt never change it. So you Got know, it. I, I realize I'm, I'm fighting a losing battle when I'm having this argument because all anybody defaults to is, well, I do, you know, the WHO and F and I'm like, you know, well, you know, they're learned people, but um, we haven't had an update of that in over, you know, 12 years now. And, and there's been evidence since. Let's let's bring this back to the to the average person who's listening right now, and so they're listening to everything that both of you are talking about, and sure. and and here's I think this is what a lot of people are thinking. They're thinking, okay, should I target the RDA of 0.8 grams per kilogram, or am I going to get significant benefit, i.e., achieving this optimal sort of outcome, if I target mm-hmm. and I see different numbers thrown around? but I see 1.1 to sort of 1.3 grams per kilo thrown around, particularly in the discussion around um, maintenance of skeletal muscle, preservation of muscle as one ages. Mm-hmm. Yep. So my question to you is, it sounds like the the sort of outcomes of interest for you are around skeletal muscle, uh, at least mostly. And I'm interested in a couple of things here. What is the evidence that makes you, when looking at that area, think that the RDA is not optimal? And if we look at the, and, and you can kind of expand on what you think is optimal in terms of protein intake. And the second part of that that I want to cover is where is the average American adult at today in terms of their protein intake? And is it above or at the level or below the level of what you think is optimal? Uh, you're right. Uh, I, I can't deny that, you know, I live in a muscle-centric world, and so I view that as, as an important outcome. But it's not the only outcome that I care about. Body composition would be important. But to the points Chris made around, you know, cardiovascular health, um, if we're talking about cancer, everything like that, you know, who wants to have a lot of muscle and, and, and die at age 60? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that, that's not, a, it's not a sensical approach. So, you know, without going into too much detail, let's just say that uh, in the original analysis of nitrogen balance, there were 13 or maybe it was 14 data points that came from older people, if that's, you know, whatever that is, let's say in their 70s. And they were higher than the average, but in the, you know, obviously eyes of the people that were setting the requirements, it wasn't sufficiently different. Now, Other nitrogen balance studies have been done. Some find that it's adequate. Others don't. Other methodologies put the requirement for an older person, and I don't know when older begins, but uh, 50, 55, 60, I don't know, um, at close to 1.2 as a requirement. So the question then is, if that's the basal requirement, What's optimal? And that's a tough question to answer. From what we know from muscle gain studies, if you're a weightlifter, it's probably up to 1.6. There are some people who insist that it's it's higher than that. I don't think it is. But, you know, we could, you know, I, I fight with people on Twitter mm-hmm. all the time over that one. What's the average intake um, today the, in, in, the, in America? Oh, yeah. No, for, yeah, so for the, from that perspective, and you know, Chris has made this point abundantly clear, and he's entirely correct. People are getting 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, but not older people. 
And, and, and that's one of the points that I'm making, particularly as you get older, the choice is actually eat a little bit less. And the choices that people make in terms of foods are away from protein containing and particularly some nutrient dense protein containing foods. And I don't think that that's, uh, you know, a, a deniable fact, uh, but Chris has pointed this out and, and I'll say this unequivocally, athletes eat a lot of protein. <laughs> and I, and if, you, if you could find a paper that I've written where I said athletes weren't eating a lot of protein, um, then, you know, go right ahead. Because I've never said that they weren't. But importantly, when I started doing this 30 years ago, um, all I ever heard was, oh, the RDA is sufficient. No, well, nobody needs any more because they didn't study athletes. They didn't study enough older people and lots of other groups. So it may well be true that the average person, whoever that is, somebody, is this somebody who's not obese? Is this somebody without type 2 diabetes? Is this somebody without, you know, name your pathology that probably about two thirds to maybe 75% of Americans are you know, North Americans are walking around with. And it's a tougher question to answer. Can I jump in on this? So that was great, Stu. Yeah, yeah. And, and Simon, I want to I wanna give a shout out to Stu because at one point we were having a mini little debate discussion. I don't really think it was an argument on Twitter. And I said, look, there's too few characters here. Can I just write you an email? Because I think uh, Huberman was saying, oh, this sounds like a great debate. Let's put this in a podcast. And I thought... You know, I bet I agree with him on almost everything. So mm -hmm. I, I wrote him a little message on the side and said, here's some of my positions. And he wrote back and said, yeah, it might be kind of boring. I guess we agree on more than we think. And I think what's important here yeah, yeah, yeah. from my perspective is that we have two really different disciplines. So if you guys will give me a couple minutes, let me share my mm -hmm. perspective, my methodology, which is really different than Stu's, which is so mechanistic. And so my background comes from doing weight loss studies with average people, right, where I'm manipulating carbohydrate and fat. Uh, my perspective comes from working with the Menus of Change. It's this group of chefs and scientists that are trying to get people to eat optimally. And one of the issues of the Menus of Change is they're focusing on the protein flip, which is eating less protein and putting plants more at the middle of the plate. And at one point, they asked me to give a little protein 101 seminar, and I did. And they said, no, really? And I said, yeah, these are, these are some of the basic facts. And so let me share these with the audience because I find these fascinating. And Stu, none of these are mechanistic. They're just super practical. And so as I look across the realm of nutrition studies where we're trying to do diet assessment and collect what people are eating so we can see if they really are eating the macronutrients we wanted for a weight loss study or for some other kind of study, it is stunning how similarly people are eating, let's say, 16 to 18% protein. It is staggering. And, and my favorite example of this is actually a weight loss study. It's called the Pounds Loss Study. It was this massive collaboration between the Pennington Research Center and Harvard. They each recruited 400 people. They had 800 people in a study for two years, and the design was pretty elegant. They were going to test protein, carbs, and fats at the same time, low and high. And so they had two fat levels, 20 and 40%. They had two protein levels, 15 and 25%. So focus on that for now, low of 15, high of 25. And then they had four carb levels so that they could have four 
diets to do this. And they took extensive dietary assessment. And at the end of the two years, the protein question could not be answered. The two groups that were shooting for 15% protein were eating 20. The two groups that were shooting for 25% ate 21. They were virtually identical. And an important note in this weight loss study was that even though 20 or 21% is higher than the 16 to 18% I just said, they were eating fewer calories and they were losing weight. And so actually the number of grams of protein at 20 to 21% was really similar to what it was at baseline. And Stu, I was stunned that these folks were expected to change their protein and they couldn't do it. And I looked at some of our studies. I've done low carb, low fat studies and I am, and they, they get some massive changes in ratios of fat to carbs. You look at the protein, it is hardly different. It might be different early on three to six months, but at 12 months, even when fat and carb is very different, protein is virtually identical. It's like there's some inner metric that just says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat as much protein as I need, eat regardless of how much fat and carb that I'm eating. And so this has been really fascinating to me to see how somehow people are able to do that. So I went back to this uh, IOM report, and you can see that uh, part of that that I hadn't appreciated before was a bunch of doubly labeled water studies that say how many calories we burn. And in our reports, I know the whole nutrition committee uh, world is sort of famous for publishing studies where it appears the participants are underreporting their intake, so less than full accuracy. And so quite often we're getting reports of 1,800 to 2,000 calories. If you look at the doubly labeled water studies, it appears the average woman requires 2,300 calories to maintain weight, and the average guy is pretty close to 3,000. They're not reporting that. So what they are reporting is a really consistent 16 to 18% protein. But if you take 16 to 18% protein and you apply it to 2,300 calories a day for women and 3,000 calories a day for men, you are already at 1.5 to 1.6 grams, kilogram body weight. So Simon, your initial question was, what's the average American eating? What's the average Australian, Canadian eating, North American? I think they're already eating 1.6. So Stu, when your paper came out and said, and I've seen several of these, 1.6, you might need 1.6, but above that, it's not helpful. My first reaction is, that's what the average person is eating. So we don't need supplements. We don't need protein bars. And the athletes who are doing this are eating more calories than the average American. So they're they're already getting more than 1.5 and 1.6. That was my rant. Just quickly, before before Stu jumps in, I'm sure he has a few things to say. I, I just wanted to, to put this out there. Um, have either of you come across the work of David Robenheimer and Stephen J. Simpson out of Sydney? They wrote a book called Eat Like the Animals. Yep. No. So yep. th- I think, Christopher, I think you, based on what you just explained then, you'd be fascinated by their work. They, they have looked at a lot of different animal models from starting, I believe, in locusts and, and also in primates and um, looking at what they describe as the protein appetite and this this very strong appetite 
for insects and animals to essentially eat until they meet this this protein appetite. And they've displayed a number of different models where an animal will even overconsume calories or fat in order to achieve a certain amount of protein balance that they're very good at. And huh. one of one of their main hypotheses is that today, if you if you if you put an animal and take it out of its natural sort of environment and put it into an environment like today with a lot of ultra processed foods and hyperpalatable foods where protein has been diluted that people will overconsume calories to mm. meet a, a sort of um, basic um, or adequate amount of, of protein balance. Um, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. It might be interesting for you to look at their work. Yeah, I think that, you know, that, that leverage idea that you just mentioned, Simon, it, it's, it does speak to, you know, a point that Chris brings up. And I, I don't disagree that, you know, most people tend to settle in at around 16 to 18%. So if there is this leverageable protein idea that, uh, you know, Simpson and Rabenheimer champion. And the data from animals seems a little bit more compelling uh, than the data from humans. It's true that if you feed people 5 10% of energy from protein, they tend to eat more mm. to seek the protein. Makes sense. It's, it's the only required uh, macronutrient. You don't need carbs. You need a tiny little bit of fat. And so you, your, your body would have some sort of protein stat to, to, to seek that. But surely it's capped out and its maximum capacity is to satisfy requirements. So again, we come back to the question, is it a requirement <laughs> or an optimization? And, and, and they're different. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's simply a different paradigm. And the optimization question is much more difficult to, to answer. So, you know, like, like Chris said, in, you know, it's, it's, it's odd, right? You exchange an email and we think we're sitting on, you know, different sides of the fence. I think we see things largely the same, except maybe with my exception that I, I think a lot less people are hitting that 1.5, 1.6, particularly as they get older. And we're looking at a global aging population um, where it's a time when actually it's the reverse of growing. Kids actually, you know, they're in a remarkable situation because Linear growth is driven by all kinds of things that actually are sort of nutrient inflexible or, or I'm going to say nutrient flexible. Um, and protein probably, as long as you get some of it, you, you tend to grow and you're not deficient. Uh, as an older person, you're preventing the downslide. And, and, and that's a little tougher to pin exactly where that is. But even if you do that, then their requirement uh, is probably close to 1.2. I, I don't disagree. And I've never said like there's a rampant population protein deficiency. Mm. But, you know, I get tired of hearing the RDA is enough. This is an old argument. You know, we just don't need to talk about that. And that's, that's the argument that is persistently, you know, and in the last 30 years that I've been doing this, uh, what I've heard. So, you know, you have a number. And programs like nursing homes and other places aim at the RDA because mm. protein is expensive and it's cheaper to give people fat and starch. So, you know, those proteins are doing a disservice. Oh, yeah, you know, Chris is spot on. Stu, Stu I've got, I have a, a hypothetical question for you here. 
And it, it comes back to, I guess, where we focus our attention and, and maybe placing some of this into context. It sounds like um, you're kind of loosely in agreement that the average person's protein intake. <laughs> Disappointing, isn't it? You brought, you brought us on, thought it was going to be a big you know, uh, scrap. I think it's just different ways of looking at this same sort of issue. Yeah. I, I, you know, I might demure with Chris on certain things, but I, I, I like we're not miles apart. But, you know, I, if we use the RDA as the benchmark, then, you know, I, I tune out right away. I'll be honest because I'm like, yeah, it's flawed. It's no basis. <laughs> right. I haven't I haven't got the sound bites of conflict that I wanted to to market this episode. So um thank you, Jim. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, gentlemen. Sorry. Um but <laughs> if you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends. The scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. <laughs> My question to you is around focusing our attention. So if you, if we are thinking about the preservation of, of skeletal muscle as someone ages, so 
you said earlier that as people uh, age, their protein intake is dropping off. Now, I'm also going to go out on a limb here and say that they're becoming more sedentary. And as I understand it, when it comes to the stimulus for preservation of muscle tissue, resistance training is, is a much greater stimulus than protein intake. So my question to you is, is the problem a lack of protein or is it a lack of resistance training and stimulus? You know, I, I learned in my undergraduate career or undergraduate degree, I should say, um, that, you know, when it comes to physiology, structure reflects function. So how much of this problem is caused by a lack of protein as people age versus a lack of exercise? Yeah, great question. Clearly, you've been reading my Twitter feed. Uh, so yeah, I, I would never argue. Uh, exercise or activity trumps, you know, in my opinion, uh, diet, with particularly with respect to body composition and protein, like hands down. Uh, we don't have the money or resources to do the type of studies where we control diet strictly enough to look at the effect of protein on body composition. But from an observational standpoint, older people who consume more protein uh, hang on to more muscle. Uh, they don't progress towards frailty. They fall less. Um, and, you know, much again to uh, a number of people's chagrins, they don't live shorter lives. <laughs> and so, you know, as laudable goals for an aging person, I look to, you know, some of the issues around, you know, falls, which are, you know, key, key uh, watershed moments and say, well, I don't know. Uh, it seems that there's an association with greater protein that may reflect greater physical activity. And if that's the case, then you're preaching to the converted. You, you wouldn't get me off this show without me saying that, you know, uh, exercise or activity is king and diet is queen. So, and if that means a hierarchy, then I, I, I guess I would, I would be supporting that notion. Mm -hmm. But are you saying as well, just to, just to be clear in, in elderly populations where protein intake has been assessed, are these populations consuming under that 1.2 gram per kilogram sort of target that you mentioned? Some are. It, it depends. I mean, like the the frailer and the more sedentary uh, individuals, yeah, they, they get you can get them below the RDA. Some of them are close to the EAR. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, you put an older person in hospital for a knee replacement or a hip replacement and do trade studies on what they're fed in hospital or what the time they spend in hospital if they're there, um, they consume about 0.6 grams per kilo per day. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there are situations where it's, it's clear that people aren't meeting their protein needs, but I, I'm not saying on a population level, and, and this is where the nuance is sort of lost, is that there's rife protein deficiency. Mm. There's not. There's, there's rife overeating of, as you mentioned, hyperpalatable foods for sure. And to bring in another perspective here, right? So as you're aging, there's loneliness, depression, issues with dentition, bad gums, bad teeth. People just aren't eating enough, right? Is it really that they're not getting enough protein or they're not getting enough calories or not enjoying their food enough? So to help some of these folks, it's not just that we would have to get them more protein. It's that we would have to improve their mood, their social lives, look at their teeth, et cetera. So I, I think it, it gets even more complex 
if, if we were, Stu, to have the money to do those kinds of intervention studies, and we don't, but it would be nice. So if anybody's listening that wants to give us that, those funds, we're open. Uh, <laughs> it, there would be a number of angles to address, and protein would absolutely be one of them, but it would be one of several. No, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, aging is a complex problem and it's not solved by one thing or another. And, and you know, that's the that's the traditional grant getting reductionist type approach that's probably been oversubscribed to without trying to bring together groups of individuals to talk about complex issues like cardiovascular disease, cancer, aging, um, you know, from multiple perspectives rather than siloed ways of looking at it. I, I wouldn't disagree. Stu, you, you sort of just alluded to the fact that, that it sounds like you don't sort of buy the idea that um, a, a higher protein intake above the RDA is a concern from a, a longevity sort of perspective, an idea that's often put out there. I think that's what you were alluding to. Um, but there does yeah. seem to be a bit of a divide Um and this might be false equivalence and, and it may be that more people are of the view that it's not a concern, but at least online, there does seem to be a divide or a split among some of the prominent uh, experts using social media and, and jumping on podcasts. Um, some some like Volta Longo, for example, or David Sinclair, yep. they they certainly advocate for protein restriction, at least through, through midlife. And it seems that most of that is is extrapolations from sort of animal research where branched chain amino acids um, or specific amino acids like methionine have been restricted in certain animals uh, models that where they've been looking at lifespan would would i be right that that folks in that camp are mostly focused on on lifespan and whereas yourself or someone like don layman um are a sort of more thinking about health span and sort of mobility and how strong you are into older age. And if I am right, are you would would prioritizing skeletal muscle, bone mineral density, et cetera, is that potentially coming at the cost of extra years of life, but improving your quality of life? Uh, yeah. Uh Big question, lots of answers. First, uh, you know, the balance, and by the balance, I mean like 90 plus percent of the evidence around protein restriction and longevity comes from small mammals. There is no protein restriction study in primates. There's an energy restriction study, uh, and it depended where the primates came from, Madison, Wisconsin, or the NIH. Uh, and in one study, they lived longer, and the other one, they didn't. So that's energy restriction, which is a far more powerful lifespan extending intervention than protein restriction. So let me just say that uh, I applaud the science that sits around, um, you know, small rodent studies and uh, models of deficiency of certain hormones like larin dwarfs and growth hormone, for example, that are cited as examples for protein as the causative nutrient, and that that's, I think, is a massive overgeneralization as giving rise to growth factors that restricts or, or, excuse me, shortens lifespan and increases the prevalence of certain diseases. So I think it's a clever idea. The reality is when you do a review of all of this sort of literature is it's 
pretty great. And we only have observational data from humans, obviously, but th there is no consistent relationship between protein intake and longevity. None. And, you know, we've, we've well, we, let me just say that two colleagues of mine and I have had a, pro, a paper in reviews it's probably been rejected from several journals. And the number of times I've talked about it, people are beginning to suspect whether it's real or not. It's real. Um, where we've looked at data uh, and using the correct statistics and all of the mortality data that are out there, there's no relationship between protein intake and lifespan or even between plant or animal protein and cardiovascular disease, uh, cancer, or all-cause mortality. So, you know, I, I begin to glaze over when people talk about protein restriction as a lifespan extending um, benefit in humans when you talk about inbred strains of small mammals that live in a cage, only consume that protein day in and day out, don't have access to a running wheel, never were exposed to a pathogen like a global uh, pandemic, never spent extended periods being sedentary where they lose muscle mass. And as you say, maybe you live longer, but you don't <laughs> live better. Um, so, you know, but, you know, Chris chuckles, but it, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the differences between those humans are an outbred species. So that for starters should give you some sort of, you know, these mice are their brothers, 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 cousins, brothers, right? They're inbred <laughs> at, you know, labs for years. And, and, and we're stunned when, when they don't actually act like, well, first, you know, true wild mice uh, that are you know, real mice, uh, not in a lab, or, or human beings. And so, you know, forgive me for being a little underwhelmed by the, the level of evidence that is brought to, to that question. And I, I just, uh, like, I stand to be corrected. If, if it's... If, but my, even my own work, you know, with a couple of folks that hopefully you'll see sometime soon, uh, suggests that it's it's just not a relationship that's there. And I hope we get to move on to that animal versus plant because, again, yes. protein is a nutrient. It's not a food. And when people go out, to, they don't go to the grocery store. Yeah. And buy protein. Yes. And, bu and buy protein. Yeah. 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 Chris, Chris, you know, uh, Chris, I just got Chris's email just before I got on the show and I quickly read it. And I think he, he brings up an important point around plant uh, protein and amino acids and deficiencies and everything that I've been trying to, I've been doing my best, push, it, push back against um, around, yeah, so I don't want to steal Chris's thunder because it's his thing, but <laughs> this is a point on which he and I can solidly agree, and it's a narrative that just, it needs to change. So... I'll, I'll just say that. And so Chris can. Thank you. Can <laughs> he can launch from there. Should we go from there? You want to frame that as a question, Simon? I, I think that was a great segue. Um, I guess we okay. could start this off. Um, so far, we've mostly focused on protein amount. So I mm -hmm. think moving into source and, and therefore this idea of protein quality is probably um, a great place for us to continue on here. And, you know, perhaps even just thinking about what we've been talking about with regards to the amount of protein in someone's diet, um, you know, if we are talking about this 1.2 gram per kilogram, which most people are already achieving, um, does the amount of protein that someone needs for 
optimal health change depending on the percentage of animal and plant proteins in their diet. And a key area there, it does come back to this amount. So let me start out on this basis because I'm going to diverge from this if I get to rant on this. So plant protein <laughs> quality is not as good as animal. It's not. It's, it's not missing any amino acids. So if we could please start there. All plant foods have all 20 amino acids, including all nine essential amino acids. And I made a fun heat map that I put in a paper in Nutrition Reviews in 2019. I can't tell you how many people have asked me for a copy of that heat map and to see if they could reproduce it, because it's pretty clear the distributions are almost identical, except beans have less methionine and cysteine, and grains have less lysine. They're not missing they're just proportionally less. How important is that? It's actually pretty important. As soon as you run out of a specific amino acid, you just can't fake it as you're making an enzyme or some other protein structure and just substitute another one in. It has to be that exact amino acid. But let's say, okay, and so I'll try to be careful how I say this too. So let's say you needed 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, not 0.8 but you ate 1.6 grams per kilogram per day and you got it from plants, probably that extra 0.4 meant that you got enough lysine and you got enough methionine. Now, if you required 1.2 grams per kilogram per day and you got it all from plants and you got 1.2, it wouldn't be enough. You would have run out of your lysine or your methionine, cysteine first before you got to make all your proteins. So there, there is a point there about the quality of amino acids. But when we look at the data that we have, people are eating high enough quantities of protein all the time that they're getting enough of all the amino acids. Every single day, they're breaking down the extra amino acids they didn't need, and they're converting it to carbs and fats. I can't tell you how many people are sort of bewildered when I, I do this one. I, I say, okay, how much fat can you store if you ate extra fat? And the answer is unlimited. Oh, my God. And where? Oh, in your butt, in your belly, in your, under your arms, in your jowls of your cheeks. Okay, how much carb could you store if you ate more carb than you needed for the day? Oh, very limited, like enough to run a marathon and not even quite that. You'd store it in your skeletal muscle and your liver, but it'd only be about a kilo. You can probably answer that better than I can, Stu. But the, I bring those two up because then I say, okay, now let's say you've eaten more protein than you need for the day, which just about every person I know does in terms of quantity. Where do you store it? Nowhere. There's no storage depot for protein. You have to break it all down and it carbs is the first priority. And if you didn't eat any carbs at the moment, you probably don't. You turn the protein into fat. And so for this whole issue of animal versus plant protein, it's, it's relevant at some sort of low level. If you're not at that low level, it's irrelevant. You've got all the amino acids you needed, and most people are able to do that, including vegans and vegetarians. And so just this idea that I can't tell you how my blood boils when I see another ad that says quinoa, the only plant that has all the essential amino acids. It's BS. They all have all the essential amino acids. Get out of here. So that's my, I have more ranting, but I'll pause for a minute there. Can I just clarify one point, Christopher? Please. Um, and I might have misheard you. 
but I just want to <laughs> clarify this in case anyone was confused. Uh -oh. um, you, when you were talking about, for example, legumes being the methionine being a sort of limiting amino acid, and you spoke about 1.2 grams or eating a bit more than 1.6 grams, I just want to clarify something. You're not saying at 1.2 grams per kilo, if someone gets all of that protein from plants, that they would fall short in methionine unless they were only eating legumes as their sole source of nutrition versus a diet that was providing a range, a diverse range of plants, some that have uh, a greater proportion of methionine. Okay. So if you wanted to make, if you want to try to oversimplify it, let's say all your protein for the day came from beans and you required 1.2 gram per kilogram per day and you got 1.2, it wouldn't be enough. Okay. Mm -hmm. What if you complemented it with grains, which actually are a little high in methionine, even though they're low in lysine? it still wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be quite enough. So plants together, even when you combine them, never make up the full complement of amino acids that animal foods have. It's, it's not the perfect distribution, but you wouldn't be very short. It's not like you're short in a huge way. So you would have to eat 1.3 grams per kilogram per day or 1.4 if it was all plants. And the, the reason that I thought Stu and I were agreeing on email one day was, it's kind of moot because most people eat 1.4, 1.5, and it just doesn't come up. But if you really did get them really close to that level of individual requirement, you would have to pay attention, but most people aren't there. Okay, so let me ask you a question then, because within the kind of plant-based community, there are some doctors, and I'm not going to name names, that the advice is just don't worry about protein, just eat enough food. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that message is okay? Or do you think people that are eating plant-exclusive diets should be at least protein aware? No, so I think that's correct. So thanks for bringing back to 30,000 feet. As long as you eat a variety of foods in your diet, I think you're going to get 16 to 18% protein and you're going to be way above whatever your individual requirement is for total and you're going to get all the amino acids you need. And let me make that even more practical because as I've been giving a protein rant at some medical conferences that I go to, I started asking sometimes a group of 500 physicians say, okay, how many of you have vegetarians and vegans in your practice that you look after? And Almost everybody raises their hand that they've got some. And then I say, okay, can any, anybody raise their hand now who has ever treated any of them for a protein deficiency? And no one raises their hand. No one's ever raised their hand as often as I have asked this question. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure if they would recognize protein deficiency if they saw it because it likely wouldn't be isolated. It would be in the, in the context of someone who had other nutritional issues, but it's pretty funny when some of them in the front row assume, oh, there must be people in the back of the room that are raising their hand that have vegans that they've had problems with, and they turn around and see no one in the room has raised their hand. And somehow that's an aha moment. So one of my latest mantras is simply stop obsessing about protein. Stu, anything to add there? Uh, you know, one of the things that fascinates me is you can go all over the world and every culture has figured out that a grain and a legume pair are the way to eat your protein. 
That suggests that there's a teleological lesson in pairing those proteins. And it must have been that, you know, when food supply wasn't abundant, and remember, that's the last, you know, 100 plus years of our existence as human beings, uh, that when a stress came around, you died. And so if you were a bean eater and you, you know, or if you were a rice eater, probably, uh, which was in abundance, you just didn't make it. So it's only under stressful times where you're going to see something that's, and I mean famine, uh, sickness, or something like that, or your protein intake is very low. So, uh, you know, Chris makes a valid point. We've just got to stop saying that plants are deficient or insufficient um, in certain amino acids, particularly when people eat the type of diets that they do now. So, and, and again, you know, I think you may have heard me say this on other podcasts, but you know, this is something on which my opinion has changed. You asked me 25 years ago when I first started, exactly like Chris, I'm like, no, animal proteins are higher quality. Uh, they've got more essential amino acids. They're more digestible. And I'm beginning to think that that's less and less. In fact, for the most part, it's a non-issue. So I don't know about the obsession around protein. I don't think anybody's deficient. And I, I again, I come back. Is it requirement or is it optimization? Difficult questions, hard to answer. But, you know, let's just stop, you know, the 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 rhetoric that plant proteins are it's just, you know, and, and, or plants contain compounds that are trying to kill you. I, you know, I, I get it. That's, <laughs> okay. That's a yeah. little extreme. But, well, but, but you can, you, I mean, you can pick anything now on Twitter and there's somebody out there that's at the degrees with you, right? So, sure. But, you know, it, it's a tired, worn out narrative. It's, it's just, and, and it's wrong. Yeah. The, if plants are trying to kill us type rhetoric is, is interesting. I, I think if, if they are trying to kill us, they're not doing a great job. Um, there's, yeah, well, there's, <laughs> There's, there's a little bit too much agreement happening here, guys. So um, let's just well, let's, sorry. <laughs> let's change gears slightly. Um, I'm I'm interested in if we kind of open up the aperture a little bit here when we're considering protein quality, um, whether you think that that definition should consider the environment. And I know this might seem a little left field, but it, it often comes up in the protein question. Um, and there seems to be, at least from my read on it, some pretty clear benefits for the environment in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and land use in particular, if people ate a little less animal protein and more plant protein. So um, interested to hear both of your thoughts on that. Can I go first? Is it my turn to go first? Sure. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Uh, I had a lot of fun writing a paper on this in 2019. And, and what we modeled, Simon, was getting 25% less protein and shifting, not making people vegan or vegetarian, just shifting sort of the current distribution of total protein from the animal side to the plant side. And I got to work with an environmental researcher and we just said, okay, what would happen to greenhouse gases? And actually we were doing water use. Uh, I've actually been really impressed with Hannah Ritchie, uh, who's on Twitter a lot with Our mm. World in Data, and she's actually modeled this kind of thing for mm. um, land use and water use and eutrophication from nitrogen and phosphorus and biodiversity and greenhouse gases. There's really sort of six planetary boundaries that are out there, and I made a whole slide deck based on her interactive database and across the board. 
animal food over plant food is more of a burden on the planet. Whether you do, and she, she has this option, you can do per kilogram of food, per gram of protein, or per calorie. And it really doesn't matter. It's just bluntly different. And so in the paper we wrote, we said, you don't have to go vegan or vegetarian, but if people, given how much protein they're eating, if they ate less protein and stopped being obsessed with it and shifted the type, you have a pretty dramatic impact on the environment. David Katz and I got to write a paper with a couple other fabulous folks and said diet quality has always been assessed in terms of digestibility and amino acid score. That's fine, except we propose those foods that you get it from come with other nutrients, higher or lower in saturated fat and fiber, which is usually better in plants, and a differential impact on the environment. So really, as, as you started to suggest, Simon, a true assessment of protein quality should probably take into account the other nutrients that come in those foods and the impact on the environment. And plants win, hands down. Any comments on that, Stu? I, I, you know, uh, Christopher knows a lot more about this than I do. I, I, I'm trying to learn. Uh, I'll admit to that. Um, I, I don't, I don't dispute in any way. Um, you know, some of the calculations that people have done, and I, I think the point is, uh, you know, as I signed off on my email or my Twitter uh, thing the other day, it was, you know, sort of unapologetically omnivorous, but. Um, there's lots of evidence to show that plant-based diets are healthier. Uh, I suppose my point would be, is it you can achieve optimal or whatever that is health on, on lots of different diets. And so uh, I, I think that it's, uh, it's definitely a point worth considering. And, you know, the broader perspective on where you get your nutrient, insert protein, carbohydrate, or fat, um, probably could stand to be expanded and mm -hmm. and you know the environment is a consideration and, and you know I, you know i don't don't know too many people that would disagree with that but uh you know chris is in the one country where uh, the leader of his country said that it was a hoax so um you know mm -hmm. just point that out yeah. <laughs> thanks chris, a lot yeah. <laughs> yep. i know i know you know it, it, it hurts chris because you know he's on the west coast and mm -hmm. he's he's probably a Democrat and all this sort of stuff. So. Possibly. <laughs> Christopher, just, just uh, to clarify something, you, you're talking there about substituting some calories from animal protein for plant protein. Uh -huh. I think it was in one of your papers. If you look at the average American's diet today and you look at their that where their protein's coming from, correct me if I'm wrong, but 70 to sort of, I think it was 80 or 85% of that is currently animal protein. Yes, that's what we found. So for, I think the highest I've seen is 85 and the lowest is somewhere around 70, 75. Yeah, and mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Okay, I know that we're, we're coming close to the, the end of this one and Shu's got to dart off. Let's finish with satiety. Um, <sighs> often when protein is spoken about, the other thing that comes up is, well, it, it can assist with weight loss. It can help uh, someone feel fuller on fewer calories um so I'm, I'm interested is protein king when it comes to feeling sated um and therefore great for someone if they're wanting to lose weight i'm in or i'll wait Stu. Your can turn. i go first yep your turn <laughs> I, I, i'm not a satiety expert uh like not by not by a long stretch uh, i'll say this uh, i've had the privilege pleasure of speaking on lots of protein programs i'm usually the exercise guy 
Um, and I've, you know, followed or listened to Rick Mattis, Marguerite Westerterp, uh, Harvey Anderson, who I think are pretty good satiety people. From a macronutrient perspective, they'd agree that protein is the most satiating. Is it the only uh, player in satiety? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm, I, I know enough to know that there are lots of other, um, you know, satiety uh, signals, stomach distension, so water, fiber, et cetera. Uh, I think I saw in Chris's email, he wanted to talk about Barbara Rolls's uh, sort of theory in this and volumetrics. And I'd be the first to say that, you know, personal experience and in Chris has got far more experience in weight loss trials than me, than me um, that they're, you know, multitudinal, multitudinous factors, you know, contributing to society. Mm -hmm. Christopher, do you want to comment on that? And I think something just just to add into that is in addition to protein, how important is the the sort of texture or the volume of of, of the food or drink that that protein is coming from? Um, just thinking about it myself, for example, a kind of pea protein shake in water for me, although it may provide 30 grams of protein, is not very sating. Right. Yeah, so drinking is never very satiating. So it's much easier to drink your calories than to eat them. Uh, if you look at some of the literature on this, as Stu suggested, I feel like it's kind of all over the map. Protein is satiating, but fiber and the water retention you get there and the distension you get, that's satiating. And fat delays gastric emptying as it floats to the top of your stomach. So fat is satiating. And we never eat protein, fat, carbs, alone. We eat them in combination. So I was, I've always been really impressed, and I've cited this one paper often, and it is just one paper, but it was Barbara Rolls being very clever, and she made a casserole in six different ways. And the casserole looked the same to everyone, and as much as they could, it tasted the same. And, the, and she had, I'm, I'm going to guess this is students. I think this is how she does most of her, her studies. She had students come in on different weekends, and they would eat something, and then they'd They'd monitor satiety with these visual analog scales or how many calories they ate later in the day. And the casserole had 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35% protein. It varied across an incredibly wide spectrum. And the participants ate the same number of calories at every level of protein. And they were asked to eat until they were sated. So I thought that was just fascinating. And just in terms of comparison, are those studies hard to do? She did another really clever one where she had two variables she was manipulating. And one was energy density and one was size that you could see visually. And she had multiple servings of these things on plates. And there were two energy densities. One was high and low. And for the low energy density, that basically just means it was the same dish, but in, it incorporated more water. And so it that water diluted the number of calories, right? And then for the volume, they just served larger and smaller portions. And what they found was if they did four weekends in random order with students, again, I think they ate something like 500 calories less a day for almost either one alone. And when they put them both together, they ate 800 calories less for the day and said they were similarly sated. 800 calories a day. And so... When I look at these things that say, yes, protein is satiating. If you eat this way, it will make a difference. I'm going to say kind of back to Stu, maybe it makes a difference sometimes. But I actually think 
other factors play a much larger role than the protein. And having said that, I will say, if you take the standard sad American diet breakfast of breakfast cereal with refined grain, added sugar, multicolored marshmallows, orange juice beside that, plus a piece of white toast with some jelly on it, basically carb on carb on carb on carb on carb, and instead you had eggs and bacon and sausage, you would be more full on the eggs and bacon and sausage. But what was the comparison? It was a ridiculous comparison of all refined carbs and sugar. Okay. Anything to add on that, on that Stu? Uh, I, I, nothing more to say. Like I said, I'm not a satiety guy. I couldn't, couldn't say anything more. Okay, great. Well, gents, thanks so much for, for doing this. I think it's, it's fabulous that we've, we're able to, to do this on podcasts and um, both of you are, are offering such a great service to everyone. So I really appreciate your time and, and coming together to, to discuss this in a sort of long format. Um, just to leave people with something here. And there was a, a lot of things that you agreed on. Um, and I'll get both of you to kind of co comment on this. What are the, the take-home points for the, the average adult that is listening to this, is thinking about their nutrition? Is it going away and getting their calculator out and adding up the, the protein in, in all of their different meals or should their attention be focused elsewhere on dietary pattern or what advice, take, take away advice would you be giving that person who's tuning in and, and just leaving this thinking, okay, what next? All yours, Stu. Uh, so first, I, I mean, you know, my takeaway is let's, let's stop using the RDA as the benchmark and agree that uh, – Oh, well, whatever it is, good health, optimal health, dare I suggest, can be achieved with a variety of macronutrient intakes. My opinion is that the amount of protein that's suggested uh, as being adequate, um, if that's the right way of saying it, isn't the RDA, it's more. Um, and people should pay attention to that. Is the average person getting more than that? Maybe. But there are groups that aren't. I'm concerned about the elderly in particular. I'm not concerned about athletes, ne never have been, but let's just stop saying that the RDA is the benchmark. And so we're all you know, gonna die an early death because there's no data for that. The protein's gonna give us cancer. The protein's gonna cause our kidneys to fail. The protein's gonna give our, make our bones weaker because you know all of those minus the cancer, which is really only based on rodents anyway, um, have been debunked. Uh, but uh, there are lots of ways to eat and eat well. Okay, and I'll build on that. First of all, thanking Stu a lot for your discipline, which I fall short in. I know really nothing about those kinds of studies. So I really love reading your material. Uh, I, I'm going to close with stop obsessing about protein. Almost everybody gets enough. Uh, I, but I really like your perspective, Stu, of focusing on different populations. I would agree I don't focus on the elderly at all, and that that is likely more of a concern than I've been able to address here. But I'm going to flip that, and I'm going to say I really wish the athlete community would listen to this because I actually think some of that might be detrimental if they're getting too much protein. They're actually, there's things they're not eating. I see athletes so obsessed with this that they're having three chicken breasts, in our, you know, elite dining center at Stanford University, and they're actually not getting maybe as many carbs as they need for 
long-term energy. And so if there is a concern for the elderly not getting enough, I'd be really interested in following your work to see if there's any detriment to some of the athletes being so obsessed that they're actually having a diminishing effect on their performance by being so obsessed. Maybe the potential for a, a future study collaboration between the two of you on that. We'll, we'll take Sounds funding, great. right? I'm up for the funding. Yeah, like like Christopher said, um, you know, any GoFundMe campaigns, you know, it's it's very welcome. <laughs> okay. Thanks, right, Simon gents. and Stu. I've enjoyed this. Um, great to have both of you back on the show. And uh, enjoy, my, my pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers. Take care, both. Yeah. Bye-bye. You too. Okay. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.